Hey guys, Amanda here. Before we get started, I want to take a moment to tell you about apartment life. Did you know that 95% of people living in apartments aren't connected to a local church? Our friends at Apartment Life bring believers into apartment communities to host events and care for fellow residents in times of need. Those experiences can open the door to meet people right where they are with the hope of the gospel, even in a pandemic. Apartment Life has connected more than 65,000 residents with a local church over the last 20 years. If you're passionate about loving your neighbors, visit apartmentlife.org slash she reads truth for all the details. Okay, let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to the She Reads Truth podcast, where we open our Bibles and talk about the beauty, goodness, and truth we find there. I'm your host, Amanda Bible Williams. And I'm your other host, Rachel Bible Myers. That's and, right. <laughs> and we are so excited to kick off our Daniel series with week one. Today we have Nancy Guthrie joining us. Nancy is a friend of ours, but even before she was a personal friend of ours, I was reading her books and appreciating her solid Bible teaching. She just released a book, God Does His Best Work with Empty, which is solid. I highly recommend that. And then Nancy also teaches these biblical theology workshops for women. And we're going to link to that in our show notes. And she's also going to talk about it a little bit more at the end of the episode. But until then, we are starting our Daniel series. This is such a great book. We're really excited about this episode. Let's just get right to it. So I love reading books of the Bible. I know we just finished the Presence of God series, and I also love doing these topical studies and digging in and actually discovering what God's Word says about the things that we think we know His Word says. (laughs) That's my favorite. Yeah, that's Hey, let's do a reading plan about this. It's probably going to go something like so-and-so, and and then we're like, oh, yeah. But there's something about—and we just did Ephesians, and I love that kind of book of the Bible, too. I like a Pauline epistle, sure, as much as the next girl. How do you feel about Pauline epistles? Love it. I mean, (laughs) they're orderly, right? It's a letter. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. There's going to be a train of thought to follow. And not all books are that way, right? Yeah. Yeah. So to read something from beginning to end is nice. It is. And with Daniel, it's, well, I was going to say I like it because it's a narrative, but we know it's narrative and apocalyptic. But it's I, that blend of both. It's, it's almost blend. like two books, don't you I think? was going to say, it doesn't feel like just one book to me. It, it takes feels a bit of a, a turn. little bit. Yeah. Isn't that what makes it challenging? Yeah. And I that think is. it one makes of the it things. one of the many things, right? Yeah, but for lots of us, it's like, yeah, let's read those first the six first, chapters yeah. <laughs> because we were already so familiar with the stories yes. if we grew up in church at all. But then you get to the second part and you're like, um, oh, what did I'm I get myself so into? Sure <laughs> so I love reading books of the Bible. I love reading a narrative. Yes, the apocalyptic part of Daniel feels a little overwhelming, but... I'm really excited about this series, and yeah. I'm so excited, Nancy, to have you here with us today. I mean, just one of the women in my life who I look up to, especially when it comes to women in my life who love God's Word and just seek to honor and uplift God's Word with their lives. And so the fact that you're sitting here in the room with us and you're opening the book of Daniel with us just feels like a huge honor. So thank you for being here. Well, that's very kind of you. And I can't imagine anywhere I'd rather be (laughs) than with two fabulous sisters who love God's Word and want to talk about it. How fun. Yeah. Okay. So let's jump into Daniel. It's a three-week series. This week, we're covering the first five chapters. But I would love, because it is the first week of the series, Nancy, would you just kind of give us the flyover, start us off, give us some foundational understanding of the setting and everything of the book of Daniel? Absolutely. I mean, don't we wish when we had studied this book as kids that we understood somehow it fit in the larger story of the Bible? I don't think I ever did. Yeah. It was just these little stories that kind of taught us, you know, how to have courage like Daniel or something. And that's because we'd kind of pulled them out of where Mm -hmm. they sit in the story. But this is one of those prophetical books. And I don't know about you, but I think most of my life, those are the books I've avoided the most. That's fair. Mainly because I didn't understand how they fit together. I think a challenging thing about the Bible 
is that it's not in chronological order. Right. Especially yeah. the Old Testament, yeah. right? And we're chronological thinkers. Sure. And so that's and why I think— for a long time, nobody told me it wasn't in chronological exactly. order. <laughs> it was like helpful to know. Oh, yeah. and even, yeah. even the book of Daniel is not in chronological order. Yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, this is why I think we kind of lop off the prophetical books or avoid them because you get to them. You're not sure who they're talking to. Can be these circular things of oracles about sin and judgment and hope, and you're just like, okay, I don't even know how to follow all of this. Yeah. But it is helpful, I think, that Daniel's a little bit different than a lot of the other prophetical books in that it does have narrative. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's really only a couple of those prophetical books yeah. that have a lot of narrative. Maybe this one in Jonah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it has that. That helps us. But then it's going to have this other strange genre mm-hmm. of literature apocalyptic, but I'll let you save that for the next episode. But it is important to understand where we are in the story. Unfortunately, because it's narrative, it really helps us with that. It tells us exactly. We know that the northern kingdom got taken off into exile, maybe 150 years before this. and But now we're reading about that the sin of the southern kingdom, which is two tribes, right? Judah and Benjamin, their idolatry has become such an offense to God that God is determined to use this foreign power, the world power at the time, the Chaldeans or Babylon, and he's determined to use them to bring judgment to his people. And Daniel puts a face to that, doesn't he? Because the king sends his army in, and their way of conquering a people group is that they go into Israel and they pluck the brightest and the best. Yeah. And this is what we read about in the first part of Daniel, right? They're plucking the brightest and the best, and they're going to carry them 500 miles east to Babylon and enroll them in Babylon University, in the Masters of Babylonian Thinking program. Yeah. This is what we read about, really, in Daniel 1. And so the book is set at that particular time in history. They have gone and they've plucked Daniel, and we're going to meet three of his other friends. These are the brightest and best of the city of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And so that's the setting in which this book begins to take place and the characters that we're introduced to. Nancy, you're such a good storyteller. I just want to sit and be like, okay, just keep going. Just keep going. But that feels like such a great foundation for where we begin. Like you said, in chapter one, that's what's happening. And like Nancy said, Daniel is, as best we can tell, about 15 years old when this happens. And just for you to have a little bit of frame of reference, we, by our best guesses, based on the dates that Scripture gives us, he is about 84 when he is in the lion's den. So that's sort of the stretch of Daniel's life. So at 15, he gets picked up and taken. And then there's that. How old is your son, Rachel? He's 13. All right. Can you imagine right now? that he gets picked up at 15 and carried off to a foreign country. There's no internet. There's no FaceTime. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, one of my first things about Daniel is I just think, wow, to be so solid on who God is and your determination to love him and serve him when you're facing so much pressure. It's amazing what we're going to see him do at 15, isn't it? And it's funny because my first reaction to that, Nancy, because of like, you know, like I grasped the sofa, like, don't say that, you know, because I think about my son and go like, no. And I was going to say, well, this is an instance where you don't want your child to be the brightest and best. You don't want him to get (laughs) picked up and carried off. But what do we want for our children? We want them to honor the Lord, right? And to serve the Lord wherever they are. And so, well, and we say they belong to the Lord. And we say they belong to the Lord. So while I want to go like, ooh, I would prefer that he not be carried off, and I would. Strong prefer Strong preference. <laughs> but at the same time, the way that Daniel was invited into the work of the Lord is wow. It's really wonderful. Well, and that's one of the themes of the book of Daniel is that God's kingdom is forever. Mm-hmm. That God is the king and God's kingdom lasts forever. And so... Every one of us, everything else is under the authority of the kingdom of God mm-hmm. all the time, no matter what, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and yeah. so that I think is what you're saying. It's like, well, if I believe that, then I mean, clearly we want your son to stay with you. But when things happen in our lives that are outside of our control and that we would never have chosen, mm-hmm. we can have that same confidence in who the ultimate king is Mm -hmm. and who we live our lives for. 
I love, Nancy, that you called it, I think you called it Babylon University. <laughs> but I mean, sure, let's go with that. Yeah. Like, it makes me think a little bit of Esther. Like, it's a very similar, like, the reason they got picked, the reason Daniel and his friends got picked, the reason Esther got picked is this moment of, like, you're good looking. Like, you appear to be what we would desire. And then they say, like, you know, the king is going to make you even smarter. And that's what we're going to do. It's going to be three years of this food, this diet, this education, and look what we can make of you. And it's an indoctrination. And it's an indoctrination. We're going to make you one of us. And in that, they also change the names. Yeah. So they want to purge them of, of this previous identity as being part of the people of God. So they take away their names yes. that are all have a reference to God, to God, right? And they want to take away what's been deeply ingrained in them, which is the book of the law, the mm-hmm. writings of Moses and the Psalms. And they want to take away all of these things from them and replace them with something, mm-hmm. replace them with their own legends, their own myths, yep. their own values. And their own I gods. Mean, isn't that the world we live in yeah. right now? Yeah. Yeah. The, the kingdom of the world we're living in right now, it's really seeking to indoctrinate us mm-hmm. with its way of thinking. Maybe we don't have to be enrolled in a university mm-hmm. to do it, mm-hmm. but it does that through the stories we watch on television and Netflix, right? Yeah. And through so many different ways, the world is trying to do the very same thing. And so... When we read the book of Daniel, yes, it's this incredible story about this 15-year-old boy, which is fabulous. But, wow, I know as I was reading through it this week, preparing for this conversation, there was just so much about it that just presented me with, this is not just the big question of Daniel's life and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego's life. This is the big question of my life. Yes. Will I allow myself to be indoctrinated by the world? Will I compromise? Will I be so caught up in enjoying and taking in what the world has to offer that it begins to chip away, to erode, to diminish any sense of identity I have as belonging to Christ and him being my king mm-hmm. and being a citizen of his kingdom. That's, That's right. a big question for me. It's a big question for all of us. If we were created to image God to the world and to reflect who he is to the world, what happened here in this story, but also in our story, is this challenge of, you know, in the case of the Babylonians, they wanted these men to reflect their own culture back to them. Please look more like us. We don't want you to reflect your God. We don't want you to image him at us. We want you to reflect us to us. And as I sit here, we can ask, are we imaging God? Are we reflecting God to the world? Or are we just reflecting the world back to itself? What a tragedy, if that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and for Daniel and his friends, the promised land is— We keep saying his friends because (laughs) Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not only is a mouthful, but also I I feel sad because those are the three names for them that I know, even though they're their Babylonian names. Like, we Mm -hmm. aren't as familiar with their Hebrew names. They're in Scripture, but we always refer to them by their Babylonian names. Good point. But Daniel, we refer to— As his— With his Hebrew name. With his Hebrew Hebrew name. name. So it is. It's confusing. I'm not sure why. Yeah. Do we know why? That's just the way the scripture puts it. Our best guess is that Daniel wrote this book. And so I don't know if there was any reasoning there. No idea. No okay. idea. But we get asked that. I mean, we've had she's write in and go like, why are you, she reads truth, using their Babylonian names and not their Hebrew names? And our answer is simply that's just what that's scripture what's in the text. Uses. Yeah, that's what's right. in the text. Yeah. 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 So Daniel and his friends, (laughs) the promised land is a big deal. And so this question of identity that we're talking about is amplified because if I am a person of God, if I belong to the people of God, but you take me out of the land of God, like the promised land, then am I still part of God's people? Mm -hmm. Or his promise. Yeah. 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 So on the end of day one, we have this little Psalm 137 And it sings that song, like this sorrowful, it's called The Lament of the Exiles. I don't know exactly who wrote it, but I'm going to read it real quick because it's exactly what you're saying, Amanda. It says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. 
There we hung up our lyres on the poplar trees, for our captors there asked us for songs, and our tormentors for rejoicing. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem as my greatest joy. What a sad psalm. But don't we see pictured, we're going to see in Daniel's story that you mentioned earlier, you know, he's taken there at 15. We see him at the end of his life, 80s, 90s, right? Mm -hmm. And what is it that gets him into trouble, that gets him thrown into the lion's den? Because he's praying. Yeah. And how does he pray? He opens up the windows and looks towards Jerusalem. Yeah. And so he's like he a living forget. person, yeah. right? Yeah. And yeah, to think about spending his whole lifetime being inundated mm-hmm. with Babylon. And, you know, who could be more inundated? He's working for these series of kings of Babylon. He's in the government. I mean, he's really inundated. But something has stayed true and faithful in his heart. And it's what's pictured, isn't it, in this Psalm 137, that Jerusalem, the God who is in the temple in Jerusalem that he's praying to, that is his, as the psalmist uses the words, his greatest joy. Yeah. So much so, he, he puts everything on the line yeah. to talk to him day by day. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the other hand, we have Nebuchadnezzar, who is fascinating to me. And even before we leave this first reading for this week, I would love to read just a little bit of yeah. the beginning of chapter one, just the start of the book, and just to sort of get some context for where Nebuchadnezzar is in his story. And then he's just going to swing like a pendulum. <laughs> It's just interesting to me because there were lots of kings of lots of different nations in this time and throughout the Old Testament, but Nebuchadnezzar really gets a lot of pursuit from the Lord. And it's neat to watch the way that repeatedly Nebuchadnezzar will actually say, like, he is the Lord God. Mm -hmm. And then he'll, you know, like you said, swing on the pendulum and just completely forget. It's just, you're right that his story is really fascinating. Yeah. Let's read just a little bit of this first chapter. This is starting in Daniel 1.1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon to the house of his God, lowercase g, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. Wow, so much right there. Right, like the contrast is really set up early on. It's almost like the God versus their gods. Mm -hmm. The other thing that jumps out to me is the first three words of verse two. Yeah. The The Lord Lord handed. handed. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Really? Exclamation point. And, you know, if let's think about Daniel wrote this for the people of God to read later. I mean, that would have gotten them right there, wouldn't it? Wait a minute, this Lord God I served, mm-hmm. he's doing this? Yeah. And then the other thing that I think we could easily skip over is the rest of verse 2, which says, they not only carried off the brightest and best of these people, when they went into Jerusalem and laid siege, they took these vessels. Okay, so that seems kind of vague. If we went back to Exodus, yeah. maybe we would look at what these vessels what were. What would these vessels right? be? Yeah. All of these particular things. that, And if you remember from a study of Exodus, how particular God was about all of these vessels that were going to be a part of worship in his temple. Mm-hmm. And here is this pagan king, and he's gone into... I mean, it takes your breath away, into the temple, and he's gathered up these. And what's he going to do with them? Is he just going to go put them in a storage bin? No, he's going to take these holy things and put them to use in the temples for his gods. And so, you know, I think if we try to read this through the eyes of the original readers of the people of God, the people who everything about their life was centered around the temple— I mean, their mouths would have dropped open with these first two verses. God is doing this, 
and they would have been horrified that yeah. these vessels were taken away to Nebuchadnezzar. You mentioned earlier connections of this book to Esther, but when I think of this passage, I think of its connection to the book of Nehemiah and oh, the yeah. books of Ezra. Because do you remember the beginning of Ezra? They're going back to rebuild the temple, and it tells us first off who he takes with him mm-hmm. and what he takes with him. Mm-hmm. These are the things he's going to take with him. So the, the exile is over. You know, we're to the end of Daniel. Cyrus has come. He said, okay, you can go back. And it's like he gathers up these vessels of the temple and he takes them back because they're headed back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And he wants those vessels in there. Yeah. I just love that. I love that. I also, when I see that the Lord handed King Jehoiakim to Judah, I can't help but think of the way that we, you know, we talked in our Promises of God study about promises like Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, you know, where it says, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, and how we know that every promise from God is yes in Christ. We have to unpack what that means and how that is true. But I look at something like this, and the Lord handed the king of Judah over to Babylon, and how do I reconcile that with, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. And I think that I look at that and I go, the Lord is in control. The Lord is on the throne and he knows the plans. And I think sometimes we forget that it doesn't say, for I know the plans I have for you and I'm going to let you know what those are. I'm going to let you in on that. But we see here over and over in the book of Daniel, we're going to see how God is on the throne, how he is in control, how he is sovereign over nations, not just the kings of the other countries, but the kings of the nation of Israel too. And how he is, like Lisa Harper said the other day, how he is galroshing us, how he is hurting us toward him. And there are ways that look like we are losing, but it is him hurting us into a place where we need him more or where we are inviting others to him. Anyway, it's just interesting to see all of that. Or sending us through the wilderness because otherwise he knows that we'll return to slavery in Egypt. Yeah, it's the route of the exodus. It doesn't look like a win. It does not look like a win. (laughs) Yeah, it makes me think of Joseph. And, you know, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Yeah. And I mean, there are, those are the felt board stories in Daniel of like, you know, the lion's den and the blazing furnace and all that, like what you meant for evil, God meant for good. But what's interesting in there is the meant both times. Yeah. Yeah. We, we could just keep going mm-hmm. on that. The sovereignty of the Lord. Okay. I would love to keep going in chapter one. Yeah. Talk and, about, let's and, talk about this food business. Yeah. This food business. Okay. So we're in day two now of our reading. And this is Daniel 1, verse 8. Nancy, would you like to read sure. for us? Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. God had granted... There we go again. God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. Yet he said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. There's those Hebrew names. They're Hebrew names, yeah. Please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. I mean... Look at that. Well, I think this is actually a tricky passage because we all want to know. What's the Daniel diet? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. We want to know in what way would that food have defiled him? Right. And I think this is one of those passages where we have to be really careful to come down really convinced about any reason because the text it doesn't, it doesn't tell, tell us. us. It yeah. doesn't tell us. So, so some people would want to say, you know, oh, yeah, he did just know what a healthy diet was. I don't Maybe, think so. I don't no, think so. Yeah. yeah. Or some might say, oh, this is going to be food that was going to be offered to idols. And so he's going to defile himself this way. Well, the vegetables would have been too. Okay. Yeah. So it can't be either of those things. So what might it be? 
I think it goes back to that whole thing. He knows that they're not only wanting to give these young men a sense of their identity as belonging to the kingdom of Babylon, they're wanting to make them dependent upon the king rather than on God who is their king. And I just wonder, we don't know for sure, I just wonder if Daniel somehow knows, okay, here we are, we're depending on them for everything, and you know what, every time when I push my seat up to the table, I'm getting invited to eat the king's food. So this is like white tablecloth steakhouse, right? And so maybe there's something in Mm -hmm. Daniel that just knows, you know what, I could get to like this Yes, a lot. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. I could get, and it could get me thinking that all the good stuff comes from King Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah. And he's wanting just to protect himself when he says, you know, not divine himself. I think he's wanting to protect his heart, his allegiance, and this is one of the ways he chooses to do it. Yeah, he's guarding his heart against I love that. This, I think that yeah. helps me kind of understand that too. Thank you, Nancy, for that. Yeah. And because this indoctrination that they are attempting with these young men is a whole life experience. It's everything from the food Mm -hmm. to the gods they worship to the way they dress, the way they live, like everything. Mm -hmm. And so I think Daniel, remarkable as he is, Mm -hmm. and even as we see him faithful to God in just really difficult circumstances, he's a man. Mm -hmm. And I think we know ourselves pretty well, and we know our limits and what can get us. You can just almost picture him, you know, everybody's there in the restaurant, you know, and they pull up their seats to the table and they say, I'll just have a salad, right? (laughs) (laughs) And But it's like a meal by meal reminder of who Mm -hmm. they really belong to Mm -hmm. and who's really supplying all of their needs. And that would be pretty beneficial. And what this teaches us, we know that there is a lot of scripture that is prescriptive. And we have a lot of scripture that is also just descriptive. Mm-hmm. And so this is descriptive. Yeah. This is a description of what Daniel and his friends did in order to live a consecrated life, in order to set themselves apart from the world, to distinguish themselves as the people of God and to serve God and to push away the things that would potentially tempt them to believe that everything that they need comes from a human, from the earthly king. This is not prescriptive. This is not eat exactly what Daniel ate, do this, except that it's prescriptive in that live a consecrated life. It's prescriptive, I think, in the sense that you're going to have some difficult choices to make. Yeah. At every step that might not be really clear, Mm -hmm. might not be prescribed for you in God's law, but you're constantly going to be saying, okay, what is going to feed my dependence on God alone, what is going to nurture my love for Christ and what might diminish it. That's so, good, right? yeah. Because there's yeah. so many things that are lawful and sure. that we could say, you know, you just look around, you go, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, mm-hmm. I, maybe even Daniel and his three friends mm-hmm. could have, you know, <laughs> looked at the buffet table and said, there's nothing wrong with any of this and would have been right. Yep. But their choices were determined by a greater love they wanted to nurture Mm -hmm. and a greater allegiance they wanted to nurture. And Mm -hmm. so they made a wise choice for them in this setting to nurture that love for God alone. And I love what happened because you look at verse four in chapter one, and it says that they were looking for men who were suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledge, and capable of serving in the king's palace. And then you look at verse 17, and it says, God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. So King Nebuchadnezzar brings them in. He's like, I'm going to make them smart. I'm going to teach them how to write like the Chaldeans, and we're going to learn this language. We're going to teach them Aramaic. And instead, I love that in verse 17, it says that God gave them the knowledge and the understanding that that was not from the king. Yeah. This passage that Nancy just read and that that you just read as well, that is where I wrote Esther in my margin. Yeah. Because of God's favor and God's 
loving kindness. Like that is what is at work here. Mm -hmm. Like yes, they have the favor of the king. Mm-hmm. And he will continue, you know, there'll be ups and downs, but he will continue <laughs> to earn the favor of the king. But the favor that matters in this story mm-hmm. is God's favor on it Daniel. It is pretty fascinating to compare Daniel and Esther. Mm-hmm. And exactly with the words that you guys have pulled out. I mean, if we were going to go through this passage and pull out repeated words, we'd see that little phrase God gave over and over again. Yeah. Now, it's rather interesting when we go to the book of Esther. And she ends up in the palace. Mm -hmm. You don't see God gave. Mm -mm. Oh, interesting. It's like she earned it. Mm -hmm. She's earning favor. I tend to think that the divine author of our book kind of wants us to contrast these two. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hate to take away from Esther's heroism, but she's a real person. Oh, yeah. And she's in the kingdom, and she's facing the same challenges in regard to compromise and identity. Yes. These are the issues for Daniel and his friends, right? Compromise and identity. Mm -hmm. And you have to wonder, the first part of the book of Esther kind of seems like some compromise there, right? Yeah. You know, she's getting all the beauty treatments, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and she's trying to figure out how to please the king. Mm -hmm. She's not refusing any of this. Not refusing. And she's not maintaining her identity. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is another book where we can't read too much into it because we're not told exactly Mm -hmm. why Mordecai tells her, don't tell anybody who you are. But it is pretty fascinating in the book of Esther that you get to the point, nobody thinks to tell her that all of the Jewish people are in an uproar because they don't know she's Jewish. And so evidently there's nothing about her life that gives that away. That's a little bit of a side. But I do think it's interesting mainly because it points out Something particular about Daniel here, God at work, that God is the one giving him the wisdom. God mm-hmm. is the one giving him favor yeah. rather than him trying to, you know, work it himself and yeah. get it. Yeah, and it's evident. It's evident. It's very evident. Yeah, evident to the tune of, listen to verse 20, in every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, meaning Daniel and his friends, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. I mean, so it wasn't even close. Yeah, not even, no <laughs> contest. far and away. Yeah. Far and away better. And so that happened at the end of the three years, at the end of the three years that they were set aside to, you know, get great. And that's when King Nebuchadnezzar said, y'all are 10 times better. Hey, friends, Amanda here. Believe it or not, Advent is right around the corner. And the best way to make sure that you don't miss out on this beautifully designed study book, our favorite study book of the year, is to sign up for the She Reads Truth subscription box. Our Advent 2020 study features daily scripture readings carefully curated for the Advent season. And like always, it's filled with Christmas joy, like favorite recipes, festive carols, and of course, some Christmas crafts. You can also invite your friends and family to read with you this Advent season. We have our He Reads Truth Advent Legacy Book and our Kids Read Truth Advent Conversation Cards, perfect for gathering the whole family around God's Word. To read with us this Advent season, head over to shopshereadstruth.com slash box to subscribe today. That's shopshereadstruth.com slash box, B-O-X. Okay, let's get back to the show. And now here we are at the end of these three years, and they've been invited to serve in the king's court. And that's how we start chapter two, which is the setting for Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. Okay, here comes Nebuchadnezzar. Let's keep reading because he's just fascinating. And the text describes him better than I will. So (laughs) Daniel 2 verse 1, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him and sleep deserted him. So the king gave orders to summon the magicians, mediums, sorcerers, and Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. So it feels like I'm summoning everyone who could possibly help me. (laughs) When they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream and I am anxious to understand it. The Chaldeans spoke to the king. Aramaic begins here in parentheses. Which is just a note to say that really from this point until the end of chapter 7, All of the book of Daniel was originally written in the language of Aramaic. I don't understand why. Nobody's really exactly clear on why that is. But there are some interesting theories on why. There are some very interesting theories, but it's just a matter of fact, and that is actually noted in the text. It says, Aramaic begins here, but we're going to read it in English. 
as we have read the rest of it as well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so continuing, it says, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, My word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a garbage dump. No pressure, everybody. <laughs> but if you make the dream and its interpretation known to me, you'll receive gifts, a reward, and great honor from me. So make the dream and its interpretation known to me. And then they panic and then they stall. And they say things like, no one on earth can make known what the king requests. Like, you're asking something not only that's impossible, but that no other king has ever asked. Well, of and they anyone. have a point. <laughs> and in fairness, all of that is true mm-hmm. to the point that we'll later see that Daniel says the same thing. He's just like, hey, what you're asking is no human can answer that for you. This is an unreasonable request. And King Nebuchadnezzar takes that, you know, in stride. No, he doesn't. He responds very harshly. Yeah. And in verse 12, it says, because of this, because they're essentially saying, King, we're out of luck. You're out of luck. We're all no one out can, of luck. No one can tell you this. It's not just us. Nobody can tell you this. Verse 12, because of this, the king became violently angry and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. The decree was issued that the wise men were to be executed, and they searched for Daniel and his friends to execute them because they are part of the wise men now. Mm-hmm. They are counted among the wise men. And then 14, it says, then Daniel responded with tact and discretion. It's very fascinating to me because I understand that in the time, this is just how kings acted, Mm -hmm. I suppose, but just the extreme response that Nebuchadnezzar has. And then you have Daniel who responds with tact and discretion. In a moment of like, hey, I'm here to slaughter you. Right. And he says... But why is this decree from the king so harsh? Mm -hmm. He seeks understanding. Help me understand why you're feeling this way. Yeah. And so Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so that he could give the king an interpretation. I like this so much because it wasn't because Daniel had an answer. Daniel wasn't saying, like, I have the solution here. I know about the king's dream and I can already interpret it. He goes to the king and he says, we just need some time. And then he goes to the Lord, verse 17 says, Then Daniel went to his house and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter, urging them to ask the God of the heavens for mercy concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. So then, verse 19, the mystery was then revealed to Daniel with a vision at night. So Daniel prayed. He prayed. Yeah. Yeah. It's Luke 12, 12. It's the like, you don't have to know in advance. The Spirit will give you what you need. So he went to the king and he said, I just have confidence that the Lord's going to help us here. Can you give me some time to go meet with the Lord? And he prayed. And then the Lord did show more. In this case, this divine revelation was the Lord's mercy. I understand nothing about the dream. I'm just going to be honest with you. I understand. I read what the text says to us. But so here we are people who are holding scripture in our hands and we have Daniel's interpretation of the dream in front of us. And I still don't I bet Nancy really can understand us. it. I'm sure Nancy can. We have a really great sketch of it in the book. Mm-hmm. Here's kind of what it looked like, but not really. It's an abstract sketch of what... <laughs> the, now, what page is that on? It's on page 31. Yeah, I love your abstract It's very... Sketch, and you know, actually. listen, we're not going to make it... It's not going to be realistic. So let's just go abstract. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, so he has this dream about all of these world powers. I mean, I don't know if we've stated it yet, but certainly it's been underneath what we've been talking about, and that is this is a book about kings and kingdoms. Yeah. And so we get to see what the kingdom of the world looks like in action in these first six chapters of narrative. Mm Mm-hmm. And then in 7 through 12, it continues to be about the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. It's just in a different genre of literature. And so we'll actually see kind of echoes of what we read about his dream here in chapter 2. When you get to chapter 7, there's going to be some things relating to that. So Daniel comes, he gives him this interpretation, and... We get the sense, here's what's going to happen in terms of kingdoms of the world. But then we get to verse 44. This is what really helps me. 
When you get to verse 44, it says, in the days of those kings, the God of heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. So all of these previous ones are being destroyed, Mm -hmm. and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. Now, I love what you guys have done in the study book because you bring in other passages that are important. And when we're talking here about a kingdom that will not be destroyed, and then look at verse 45, you saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. Mm -hmm. So he's saying, okay, there's going to be all these world kingdoms, but then there's going to be a kingdom that it says it wasn't made with human hands. In other words, this this isn't a human kingdom, and it's going to crush all the other kingdoms. And I tell you what helps us understand this which is far better than the original readers of the book of Daniel had, is that we have Jesus who refers back to this, and he describes himself as the stone that the builders rejected that's become the cornerstone. And once we have that, this is what we're always looking for when we read the Old Testament. Sometimes in the New Testament, we're told exactly how we can see the person and work of Christ in this more mysterious, hidden way in the Old Testament. Sometimes we have to use good interpretation skills and make some appropriate connections to get it. Nothing's better than having Jesus himself say, I'm that stone, you know? <laughs> yeah. and, and he basically says, you know, if you don't believe in me, you're going to be crushed yeah. by this stone. And so Jesus himself makes it clear what this dream is about, in a sense, saying he's going to be the king of a kingdom. When you get a word like the last word of verse 44, yeah, forever, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know this is not an ordinary kingdom. So we've got that word forever. Maybe that would also make us think about where we've been before the book of Daniel. Maybe we would have been in 2 Samuel and we read this promise that God makes to David. Mm-hmm. And he says, you want to build me a house? I'm going to make you a house. Basically, I'm going to make you a dynasty of kings. You're going to have a son who's going to one day sit on your throne. And he says, and his kingdom will never end. He's going to be seated on the throne forever. Mm -hmm. And so we we kind of bring that into reading this passage in Daniel. And we think, okay, where is the forever kingdom going to come from? And of course, it's going to come from that greater son of David who's going to sit on the throne. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting also to think about that. Well, first of all, that last sentence of that paragraph says, the great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain and its interpretation is reliable. I like not only in this scenario, here's what's happening. One, Daniel and his friends, their hides are saved because they were able to tell the dream and its interpretation. So that's one thing that's happening. Number two, King Nebuchadnezzar is Getting what he asked for, though it's not exactly what he asked for. He's finally found someone who can interpret his dream. And Daniel's saying, the eternal God has actually given you a little bit of a window into what is to come. And the third thing that's happening, not only is King Nebuchadnezzar getting this information, and not only is Daniel saved, but Daniel's getting this information. He's also getting this promise. This is new information to him, and he's hearing for the first time this promise of this kingdom that will go forever. And let me tell you what, it's going to serve him well for both David and all of his friends, because they're about to face the wrath of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, aren't they? Yes. In the form of fire and in the form of lions. And, you know, you need something to strengthen you. For that kind of persecution and that kind of danger. And when God has given you a dream and you see that the kingdom you're living in at this point is going to go away, but there's a kingdom not made by human hands that's going to crush all the other kingdoms of the world, I think that emboldens you to go, I'm going to be true to that kingdom. I'm going to put all of my hope and trust in that kingdom rather than be so afraid of the one I'm living in now. 
So you think of Daniel roughly 18 at this point, three years after he was taken to captivity, and this is what the Lord is telling him to tell to the king of Babylon, but he's hearing it from the Lord too. And that, when we talk about age 84, 80-something Daniel, that he's still praying to the Lord and looking to Jerusalem multiple times a day, Mm -hmm. that's the guy that got to hear at 18 this promise from the Lord that there is a kingdom that is so much bigger and better and long-lasting. You know, this makes me think that... As a community, as we read through a book like Daniel, we're trying to make sense of it, and some of it's challenging to understand, but we're getting this sense that it's about where am I going to find my identity, Mm -hmm. what kingdom am I going to be faithful to, and we see, oh, we see what God did for Daniel and his friends that gave them the confidence in God's kingdom to be able to obey him and honor him at great risk of their lives. I think it should move us to prayer. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm, That we don't just read the scripture, but then we talk to him about it. And honestly, I don't expect in my life I'm ever going to have a dream that's as clear as this. Yeah. That God is going to reveal some profound mystery of the universe to Nancy Guthrie (laughs) that I can then go tell the king, right? But he's given me his word. Right. And so it makes me want to pray, Lord, give me such a vivid sense, burn into me behind my eyes where I can see the glory and majesty and security of your kingdom so that it will embolden me and give me the courage I need to face the worst that this world might sling at me. Mm -hmm. Help me to see it as clearly as Daniel did. I'm not going to see it through a dream, but I'm going to see it through your word. Yeah. But burn it into me. Make it that real to me. Yeah. Yeah. And then let me live as a citizen of your kingdom. Right. Not as of the kingdom of this world. Right. It reminds me of when we were reading Job and we, you know, they want answers. Yeah. His friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why is this happening? There must be reasons. You must mm-hmm. have done something, whatever. And we talked a lot about how we so often want to know a why, like why or how or what, but the answer we most need is always who, who God is. Yeah. Yeah. And he is what we're really seeking. He is the only, the only satisfying answer. Right. And so here Daniel makes very clear, he is very clear and he tells Nebuchadnezzar the who here. He's Mm -hmm. saying, you know, listen, these men are right. No one can interpret this dream. Mm-hmm. But there is a God, mm-hmm. capital G, in heaven who reveals mysteries. And then he does that. And Nebuchadnezzar sees it for just a minute. He well, he takes it seriously. Yeah. So this is interesting. And Nebuchadnezzar almost gets it. But listen to what he does. Verse 46. Then Nebuchadnezzar fell face down, worshipped Daniel, and gave orders to present an offering and incense to him. The king said to Daniel, your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings, and revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. And the king promotes him and gives him gifts and all the things. And we're good. We're saved. And then we turn the page. (laughs) We turn the page and we go to chapter three. And even though he has just said from his mouth, your God is God of gods, king of kings, Nebuchadnezzar makes a statue, a -hmm. gold statue, 90 feet high, nine feet wide, you know, so not small, Mm -mm. orders everyone to bow down to the statue every time they hear the horn sound. And what are Daniel and his buddies going to do? No way. But just think of it. I mean, if I were them, I could probably think of some good justifications for bowing down, right? Right? If you're in that setting, you're just like, okay, well... My body will bow down, but, but my in heart, my heart, yeah, won't yeah right, right, right. And you know what? If I don't mean it, in my heart, it's not that big a deal, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there would be so many ways you could justify, or like, if you I know bow what? down, then I get to stay alive and continue to be a witness. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Would yeah. be so many ways to justify. That would be the one, but they yeah. don't. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And if I preserve my life. I'll then I can, serve, I can, then I can serve the Lord exactly. after that. Yeah. Yeah. Because verse six, we're in Daniel three, chapter three, verse six. Whoever does not fall down and worship 
will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. So their punishments are not subtle right. in Babylon. Like you are going to die if you do not do what is clearly expected and communicated that you are to do. In fact, once they, you know, this as the story goes, the Chaldeans are like, hey, we're going to take this as an opportunity to get some of these Jews out of here. Like literally, I think it says some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. So they make this plan, like let's make sure that King Nebuchadnezzar, that he enforces this rule. And so then we get to the point where the trumpets blow and the harp and the lyre and all the different instruments, and they don't bow down. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are brought to Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, hey, listen, like, not cool. And then that's my translation. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. but he says, but hey, if you don't worship this statue, and this is actually CSB now, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? And they tell him. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, king. But if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. This is the moment that... I think so often in in so many times in our lives, and also as we're reading scripture, we point back to this moment because it's such a clear moment. It's such a clear statement of faith where these men are going, we know that God is able. We know that He exists. We know that He is able to save us from this. And if He does not, that doesn't change who God is or what He can do. And if He does not, we're still not going to bow down. We're still not going to worship you. It's this double statement of faith that God exists and that we will serve Him. Such an important statement. I mean, this is one of those things we can reach back into and make our own because I know you guys just finished this wonderful study of the promises of God, and there's so many promises in the Old Testament. We want to grab and make our own, don't we? And we want to make them apply to our temporal, physical life Mm -hmm. in the here and now. And I love this, that these guys are giving us this prayer because this is real life for where you and I live as we live. We live in exile, in a sense, right? As aliens and strangers. And things come along in our lives. I remember when this passage became very real to me in a period of time where David and I were parenting a daughter who was given a fatal diagnosis, and we were surrounded by people who wanted to pray for a miracle Mm -hmm. and felt like we should be praying for a miracle Mm -hmm. and thought less of us that we didn't. You know, to them, real faith looks like you know, putting in your order with God and Mm -hmm. telling what you think is best Mm -hmm. and expecting that he will do it. And I often felt at times like one reason they felt like we didn't have faith was they made the assumption that we thought it was because it was too hard for God, Hmm. that we didn't have enough faith to believe he could do it. Right, yeah. When that was, I mean, a God who can speak this creation into being with words, Mm -hmm. I mean... He can do anything. He can do that. Right? Yeah. But he's also not obligated to work yeah. in yeah. my life yeah. in the way I or anyone around me thinks he ought to, mm-hmm. and yeah. it doesn't change who he is. And I just remember these verses becoming so powerful to me mm-hmm. in that time. Yeah. Yes, he is able to, but if not, yeah. if yeah. that's not his choice, if that's not his plan. And so here is this vivid faith of these three young men. I'm not going to bow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to be compromised. My confidence is him and whatever he does is right. And this is a place that we can camp and take hold of and say, boy, I want my life to be marked by that kind of faith yes. and trust in God. Yeah. Yeah. We often are quick to talk about the faith that can move mountains, you know, and that that's the faith that we want. But yes, I mean, that's also, you know, faith like a mustard seed. It's in scripture. But the faith that can trust and believe that God is good when the thing doesn't happen. When the mountain doesn't move. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To me, in my own story, that has been what has grown my faith, has actually been when the miracle I ordered (laughs) didn't happen. 
Doesn't mean miracles didn't happen. Yeah. Because boy, did they, but mm-hmm. not the one, you know? Yeah. So there is a scene in The Princess Bride. Uh, this seems like a jump to me. It's a little <laughs> bit of a jump. I'm bringing us back to our story. So to bring us back to Daniel chapter three, there's a scene in The Princess Bride where Prince Humperdinck gets so mad that Princess Buttercup will not love him. And so he rushes to the pit of despair where Wesley, sweet Wesley, is like bound on this torture device. And he's so mad that he takes the torture device and cranks it up to like 100 times higher than it's ever been. And just ah, like so much happens. And that's this moment for King Nebuchadnezzar, because what's happened is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have gone like, no. God can do this. And even if he doesn't, we're still just going to serve him. We will not bow down. And then Prince Humperdinck or King Nebuchadnezzar, it says, is filled with rage. And the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary. And he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and their other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king's command was so urgent and the fire was extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm telling you, it's like Prince Humperdinck for those of us who really love is. the Princess Bride. Well, listen, I almost made a reference to Sandlot a couple of times earlier with forever, but I didn't, I didn't know. <laughs> but since you've gone there, I'll go there too. It's incredible. And then Nancy, tell us what happens. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. And then it says that not a hair of their heads was singed, their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. And then in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people or nation or language who says anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and their house made a garbage dump. I mean, he's really, there's something for him about houses being made into garbage dumps. And then he says, for there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. Then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So, you know, as we read this story, I think we're right to be looking at Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to be holding them up as examples to us because they are great examples, aren't they, of faith and confidence in God? But I think we're missing something if that's all we do. Yep. Yeah. Because really, in some ways, they're just in shadow form showing us something about the person who went into the fire, we would say, yeah, and was consumed by the fire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He didn't walk out unscathed. Mm-hmm. He did come out <laughs> mm-hmm. in resurrection. I'm speaking of Jesus, of course. He is, when we think about someone who never bowed down, makes me think of when he was in the wilderness and Satan tempts him to bow down. Mm -hmm. And of course, he will not bow down. And so he is the ultimate faithful person in this story that this story points to. Yeah, yeah. And Jesus is why. Yeah. Psalm 27, which is so beautifully paired with this passage from Daniel, is true for us, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? When evildoers come against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, I will still be confident. I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. I mean, that feels like a benediction. Yeah. That is why we know that as we read the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, Nancy, you're right. Like we can look at them as examples of 
men who lived in exile who served the Lord. And we get to watch what it looks like to serve the one true God and to be citizens of the everlasting kingdom. And so, yeah, we can look at them and and learn some things from them. But you're right that what they're pointing to, they're imperfect examples. They're pointing in these shadows of this perfect example of the one who not only is Sure, like a citizen, he's the Lord of this everlasting kingdom, but he's the one. He's the reason. He's the thing that makes us citizens of that kingdom. And so everything we read in the Old Testament, it's going to just shadow. It's going to whisper us toward Jesus. And I love getting to land there and just kind of going, my hope is to just live in the house of the Lord. And when Daniel was 15 or 18 or in his 80s, He's doing what we also hope to do, which is looking to a kingdom that will last forever. We're going to keep doing that as we continue to read Daniel. Yes. Next week, we're going to keep going on these stories. But before we do, Nancy, as our guest, we love to hear from our guests. You know, we, of course, spent the last hour looking at scripture and finding beauty, goodness, and truth there and talking about it. And so now I just want to ask you, where in your life are you seeing beauty, goodness, and or truth that's just pointing you to God? I feel grateful this week. You know, I was reading the word preparing for talking to you. I was doing it for something else I'm working on. And familiar passages, you know, passages that I've taught on, written on. And I feel so grateful that God's word is both so clear that someone who doesn't have a lot of education, like I don't have, can understand it. It's not written for seminarians, right? It's written for ordinary people. I feel so grateful the Bible is clear enough for us to understand. And at the same time, it has such depth, Mm -hmm. such many layers of meaning that it is worthy of me spending my whole life seeking to understand, never getting to plumb the full depths of it. Yeah. First of all, that it's worthy of that. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is, you know, most things in this world that we really look at closely, you know, you hold a magnifying glass up to something, whether it's an object or an organization or a person, anything. And it's just like the deeper you get in, the closer you look, it starts to fall apart, right? You begin to see the cracks, mm-hmm. the flaws, And I feel the exact opposite about the Bible. Yeah. Don't you? Yeah. That the more we read it, the more we tear off huge chunks and chew on it, and the more we take our curiosity and our energies to it and ask it the hardest questions that we can come up with, and we've got a lot of them, right? But the closer we look, the more it holds together. It doesn't fall apart. Isn't that... This is why it's worth investing our lives, every day of our lives, opening up the Word to read it. Yeah. And Nancy, that's what you do. And this is something that I, I mean, this is how I was first introduced to you. I think I was a reader of your books before we had ever met in person. I was so excited to get to meet you in person and to now get to be your friend. But this is something that I so admire about you that you do give your life to this in so many different ways. You write books, you do these respite retreats that care for parents who have lost children. And that ministry alone is just so, so significant and meaningful. But you also do this thing that I love. You invite women to do what you just talked about, to plumb the depths and to delight in God's word. And you do that in these workshops that used to be in person. And of course, now they're online. Nothing's in person anymore. Nothing's in person anymore. (laughs) But that's sad because I know that you enjoy travel and I know you enjoy being person to person with people, but it's a benefit to us and our listeners also because it's something that can be available to them right where they are. That's right. I've been offering these biblical theology workshops for women. It's three sessions that are oriented toward understanding how to tell the story of the Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, yeah, and to get a sense of what the big themes are. You know, every book has a theme that the author has written into it. Well, the Bible has those too. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking about Daniel. I mean, here is one of the major themes of the Bible, kingdom. 
kings and kingdoms. And the thing is, we don't read Daniel just by itself about kings and kingdoms. We read it in context of a whole story about kings and kingdoms. And so that's what's beautiful about the book of Daniel. So anyway, we at these workshops, we try to get better at telling the story of the Bible, looking at the Bible through themes that the divine author has written into his book, believing that as we do, whenever we see those themes arise in whatever smaller passage it is that we're studying, that we're going to do better at rightly understanding it and yeah. applying it to our lives. So I started doing those in person last fall in lots of different cities, and I've got 21 cities set up for next year that, Lord willing, we're learning to say that about all of we're our plans, right? We're learning to say that, yeah. That, Lord willing, I'll be, be doing around the country. It used to be that we would say, if the Lord tarries, but now it's just, it's just like, like, Lord willing. If he lets me get on a plane, right? Willing, yeah. <laughs> but during COVID, I've been offering these online, which has been... I didn't think I would enjoy it very much. I thought it's going to feel so distant. But, you know, like with the chat feature on yeah. a Zoom meeting and everything, I mean, they have been so much fun. That's so great. my next one is October 24th, I think it is. And I'm taking registrations now. And so it's like nine to three via a Zoom meeting, me with women from all over the world. That's the beautiful thing about doing it during this season, right? Via Zoom, right? It's not just people who can get to the city where I'm doing it, but it's people all over the world. And that has been really fun. I mean, it's honestly a perk. We're going to throw a link to that workshop in our show notes, shereadstruth.com slash podcast. But also, Nancy, will you just tell us the URL right now? Yeah, nancyguthrie.com. Perfect. I know, I could have been more creative. No, I think that's perfect. That's lovely. Okay. Well, girls, we are wrapping this episode. What a perfect way to start this Daniel series. Thank you for teeing this up so well for us in the big picture sense, Nancy. Thank you so much for joining us and just talking about this with us. Thank you for inviting me to have a conversation that matters. Yeah. And all of our conversations about God's Word, we're getting to talk about what really matters in the world. So thank you. Yeah. And then next week we'll have our friend Jen Wilkin to join us to talk about that next section of Daniel. That'll be a lively conversation. I talked to her already about it. You How's know, she she's, feeling? She's doing her homework. It's a big week. I mean, I don't mean, miss full, it. Full disclosure, we're like, who can we bring to talk about Daniel? Because, you know, you have to be a good friend to say yes yeah, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to a chat about Daniel. So we're it's tough. So we're excited about next week. And until then, Nancy, what do we say? Keep opening your Bibles. <laughs>